Again, so grateful uh, that we're able to have this opportunity to come and worship God together and grateful to be here to share God's word with you. Uh, we, for some context, um, some of us uh, are here and have been tracking along with us for some, some time, and then some of you uh, may not have been, so for some context for where we're coming from, uh, we have been in uh, the Gospel of Matthew, uh, making our way through uh, since uh, the inception of, of our church plant uh, a little over um, a year ago, back in last September. Uh, so we've been making our way, and you can see that we're we're in Matthew 11. So we're gonna be we're gonna be here for a while, but we're making some good progress. Um, so our our sermon series is called King and Kingdom, and we've been kind of focusing on this idea that in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew is presenting Jesus to us as the King, as the one who rules and reigns, and that as King, he is ushering in a, a kingdom. A kingdom uh, of which those uh, of us who uh, seek to uh, serve him and believe in him and trust in him are a part of. And uh, we've been making, making our way through, uh, just to summarize a little bit of where we've come from, we, uh, we went, we've been going through, we went through the Sermon on the Mount, which was just uh, an awesome time of hearing Christ's teaching about the kingdom. And we transitioned into... Um, uh, in Matthew 8 and 9 about Jesus uh, performing many miracles uh, and showing his authority as, as God, sort of confirming his authority as God and, and king. And last week we looked in Matthew chapter 10 where Jesus sort of uh, sends out the apostles and gives them some directions and instructions and, and guidance about the, the difficulties that come along with mission but also some principles for them to hang on to and hold on to. And we, and we spent a good amount of time talking about what are those principles for us as we are on mission and the mission that God has given us. What is it that we must do uh, in regards to that? And now we come to Matthew chapter 11. And as we come here and as you, I hope, are listening as Jabin was kind enough to read our passage this morning to us, uh, we return now to a, fig, uh, to a figure that was featured prominently in the beginning of the gospel, but that we haven't heard much of since. And that is who? John the Baptist. If you go back to chapter 3, we saw that John the Baptist was you know, this wilderness preacher who preached this message of repentance and the forgiveness of sins and a baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And he was challenging the religious leaders of the time and their hypocrisy. And he was calling for the people to prepare themselves for the coming Messiah. And he identifies Jesus as the one who is greater than himself. It goes on in chapter 3 to show us that John baptizes Jesus. We get that beautiful picture of the Trinity with the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus as a dove, and the Father speaking from heaven, saying, What this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And the last we heard of John in Matthew's gospel was in uh, chapter 4, verse 12, where we find out that he was put in prison. In Matthew 14, we're going to find out why. And that's it. That's the last we got, Matthew 4. We've come a long way. 
and not a peep about him in the gospel until chapter 11. And in the beginning of chapter 11, we see that John sends a message to Jesus from prison via his own disciples. And you see that in verse 3, Matthew chapter 11, verse 3. And they said to him, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? Are you the one? Or shall we look for another? Now, by the time John is asking these questions, he had likely been in prison for some time. And while he is in prison, what happens? What does it seem as though has happened? Some, some doubts. Some doubts have crept in. He had believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but now, but now, he is starting to wonder. <laughs> and this should lead us to ask, what, what is the cause here of John's doubt? What's causing John to doubt Jesus at this point? Now, there are many ways that John the Baptist is hard for us to relate to, right? I'll, I'll grant you that, right? Um, he wore camel hair. I don't see many folks here dressed in camel hair, right? There's still some time for people to straggle in. We'll see, right? <laughs> They'll know why you're staring at him. Uh, he ate locusts. I don't know. Any locust eaters in here? Anybody want to confess that? Not sure. Maybe one or two. I see some smiles. I don't know what's going on here. Okay, we'll, we'll get the story after church on that one. He lived in the wilderness. Now, some of us have moved out into the boonies pretty far. I don't think it's quite wilderness yet, but uh, yeah, close. We're getting close, maybe some of us, right? Uh, yeah, many ways in which uh, we may not relate. Nothing I really I can relate, with, relate to him with there. But right now, here in chapter, t chapter, uh, chapter 11, I find John very relatable. I find him very relatable. And I think you might too. Because we often find ourselves doubting for reasons that might be similar to John. So for a second, let's, let's dissect doubt, if you will. Let's look at the anatomy of doubt. There are three things I think we can learn about doubt in this passage. First, it's that doubt often rises or comes about in difficult situations. Difficult circumstances, right? We've already seen John, a prophet in the wilderness, he was boldly proclaiming God's word and with boldness and preparing the way for the Messiah, pointing people to him. But now, what? As a result of this bold proclamation, as a result of this faithful proclamation, what was John experiencing? Shame, hunger, physical torment, 
an emotional struggle as he sat there alone in prison. And maybe you can relate. Such difficult situations, difficult situations tend to produce doubt. Second, accompanying the difficult situations, uh, the difficult situations were unmet expectations. Unmet expectations. Right? You have to think about it. After all, this is the Messiah of whom he prophesied what? Or of whom it was prophesied. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. That's from Isaiah. But now it was becoming clear at this point that, that Jesus was not meeting the expectations that a lot of Jewish people had for the Messiah. John the Baptist had prophesied about the judgment that Christ would bring. And we know that he is the great judge. And we know that he will judge. it. But, but John is, had preached that. But what was the reality of the circumstance? Rome was still in rule. Rome was still in place, and John was in jail because of it. Talk about setting the captives free. John is somewhat of a captive here in this moment. It must have been confusing for John to see all of this, to see Rome still in charge, to see sin still rampant, to see political and religious corruption just ruling the day. Everything just seemed to be the same way as it was for generations and generations. And then, instead of overthrowing Rome, what was Jesus doing? Spending time with Sinners. Teaching them about what? Forgiveness. Also surprising, he's, he's, not, he's not even fasting. And John, he's thinking, isn't the Messiah the one that's going to deliver us? So third, in the midst of his struggles, John suffered from limited perception or limited vision. He simply didn't understand everything that was happening or not happening around him. So what does he do? He sends his disciples to question Jesus. In reality, many of our questions and doubts often spring from these same factors. It's often in the midst of challenging circumstances that faith is hardest to come by. Especially when what we've been walking with the Lord, faithfully serving, worshiping Him, and then tragedy hits. Maybe even multiple tragedies. 
And it's, and it's in these moments that we, that we see doubt creeping in. We think, God, where are you? We don't understand. We don't understand why certain things are happening. Especially when the trials seem to be getting in the way of our desire to serve God. We know he's good, but we can't understand why the struggle won't end. Oftentimes, trials will come as a result of sin in our lives or the sin in the lives of others around us. But even when our trials aren't the direct result of our own disobedience, we have to remember that our perception is limited. For example, John the Baptist had no idea how this story of Jesus the Messiah was going to play out. God was ushering in a totally different kind of kingdom than most Jewish people expected. This was more than just political regime change. God was ushering in what? The redemption of the entire world. And John likely understood much of this when other people didn't, yet he had to be perplexed with the timing. He had to be perplexed with the timing of it all. Wasn't the Messiah supposed to bring imminent blessing, imminent judgment? When would this kingdom come? See, John's perspective was limited. And really, if we are to acknowledge it, so is ours. Whenever we go through difficult situations with unmet expectations and questions rising up within us, we need to remember that our perspective is always limited. And then in the end, we must trust that God, the faithful one, the omniscient one, knows what he is doing. And so, and so that's sort of the dissection of doubt and the anatomy of doubt. But there's something more important than that because if we just stop there, that doesn't quite help us. There's something Im more important than the anatomy of doubt, and that's the answer, the answer of doubt, the answer to doubt. And we can see here in the text, I think, at minimum, there's, there's two sort of main answers. First, we confront doubt with God's Word and then with what Christ has done. God's Word and what Christ has done. When you think about God's Word, when, when John's disciples question Jesus, what does Jesus say in verse 4? He says, go and report to John what you hear and see. And then what does he say? The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. Now what Jesus says here is doubly familiar. One, he is pulling from the, 
the prophet Isaiah. What he is saying is pulling from the, the scriptures and what Isaiah has said about the Messiah. So it is familiar in that sense. But also, if you've been here with us and you've been tracking along through the Gospel of Matthew with us, did that, did that what Jesus said, did that sound familiar to you? Those activities, do they sound familiar to you? The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Lepers cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. The poor have the good news preached to them. Sound familiar? Jesus just summarized Matthew chapters 5 through 9 to us. The Sermon on the Mount as he preached the kingdom. And then we saw in chapters 8 and 9 all of those things Jesus did. He's really summarized it for us. So basically, he's combating John's doubt by pointing to God's word and the word of God come alive in what God has done in Christ. And really, that's the antidote for doubt for us too. First, God's word. God will be true to his word. And, and trying to fight doubt without a foundation in the truth of his word is futile. God's word is a rock. Not because it makes everything easy, but because it keeps your feet out of sinking sand amid, amid difficult circumstances and unmet expectations. And we also have what? What Christ has done. So what did John have to look at for what Christ had done? What did, what did John have to look at for what, what God was doing? Well, he could, of course, look back into his own scriptures and see the amazing miracles of God, go all the way back to creation, go into Exodus and what God had done for his people. And also, John could look at these miracles that Jesus was performing. But what about us? What do we get to look back upon and see that Christ has done. So if you go a little further down, Jesus begins to kind of speak about John the Baptist, and he says something very curious in verse 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. That's, that's saying something, right? But then, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now that is saying even something else. What's, what is Jesus getting at here? 
Well, you have to think about where John fits into the, the narrative of redemption. So we have all these prophets that came before, sort of setting the scene for the Messiah that is coming. These prophets that sort of plant the seeds about the Messiah that is to come. And we're getting closer and closer to that time, and John is the forerunner. He is that prophet that is right before Jesus that is preparing the way for the Lord. So sequentially, right, in terms of proximity, John here has the preeminent position because he is right here. He is the forerunner. He is the one that is, is in proximity closest to Jesus in this redemptive ark. But Jesus says the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What does that mean? Something is going to change. Something's going to shift. Something is going to happen so that those who are on the other side, part of the kingdom, even those who are going to be way, way, way out that are looking back are going to be in a greater position of privilege, are going to be in a blessed position. Why is that? Why is that? See, John looked back and he saw the Old Testament miracles and he looked and he saw the miracles that Jesus did. But when we look back, those of us in the kingdom, what do we see? We see the cross. We see the cross. See, Jesus in saying all this is saying that the cross is this monument in history that is changing everything. That when we get to look back as, as part of the kingdom, we see Jesus upon the cross. And the cross is the great antidote of doubt. For upon the cross, we see our sin paid for without a doubt. We see our shame covered without a doubt. We see the wrath of God that would be upon us satisfied without a doubt. Our pain and suffering entered into without a doubt. The grace and mercy of God shone forth without a doubt. You know, doubt creeps in, and, you know, I can't, I can't pretend to know all of your circumstances and all of your situations and all of your suffering that you have had to go through or are even going through right now. I don't know, and I can tell you assuredly that I don't have the answer for every specific instance of suffering and doubt that you have gone through or you are going through. But as we look back upon the cross, we can say what the answer is not. 
And the answer is not that God is not real. And the answer is not that God is not near. And the answer is not that God does not care. And the answer is not that we are without hope. Why? Because we have the cross. And when you look upon Christ, upon the cross, you, what do we learn? How is doubt combated? See, we know God is real because of Jesus. We know God is not far away because Jesus came. We know that God cares because he died. And we know that we have hope because he rose again. What a privilege that we can look back upon the cross as the antidote for our own doubts. You know, I, I, I see John the Baptist in this moment, and I can't help but think about how his story started. He was born in a miraculous fashion to very aged parents. But God had a specific calling and purpose upon his life to be the forerunner of Christ, to prepare the way of the Lord. And now I think of him in prison. And his parents, again, who were very old when he was born, most likely, they're out of the picture. But I'm sure when he was young, they knew the purpose God had for him. And I'm sure they made that purpose known to him and trained him and discipled him for that purpose. And I'm sure that they did that understanding two very stark realities. One that one day he would be without them. And two, that the difficult seasons of life would surely come. And really, those are the two realities that all parents with children face, isn't it? That one day... <laughs> They will be without us and that the difficulties of life will surely come. And this morning, as we come to dedicate a child, we might ask the question, like, why are we doing this? And what is, what's the point of, of dedicating a child? Well, it really has to do with the kingdom of God. Now, you might say, oh, preacher guy is just trying to connect it to his sermon series. Hear me out for a moment. Hear me out. So we know that, that a church, that a church and the church and the kingdom of God will grow, and it will happen in predominantly two ways, two primary ways. One is by going out, 
like we talked about in, in Matthew chapter 10, by going out on mission and reaching those who are hurting and broken and lost with the truth of the gospel. Those who are unchurched, maybe there are those, you know, that never really had a spiritual background, right? Never really came up in church. Religious, religiosity is not on their mind. Spirituality, not their thing. The unchurched, whether they be the de-churched, right? Those who went to church but for any number of reasons have now, for some reason, separated themselves away from church. And maybe the in-church, that's my special one, right? Those who are in church but they don't know why they're there. They're just in church, right? So that's the, that's the in-churched. And then even the anti-church, those who are opposed to God and opposed to the church, right? One way that the kingdom grows is by going out, going on mission and reaching those folks. That's one way, but there is another. There's another way. And that is for those who are in the kingdom for those who are believers to have children and have a whole bunch of them, if you please, and share the truth of the gospel with them. And dedicating a child is in part a celebration of that. It's really a celebration of the kingdom of God. Now, what is a child dedication not? Well, there's nothing, there's nothing mystical or magical about it. There's nothing salvific about it, meaning that the child is not saved by it, doesn't become part of the kingdom by it. But really, it is the beginning of an ongoing ministry of clearly presenting the purpose of God for the child to the child and the opportunity for the parents of the child and the community of faith that comes around them to commit to immersing the child in the gospel, nurturing their faith, discipling them all in the hope that one day they would put their trust in Jesus Christ, and when, not if, and when the, the difficult seasons of life and doubt come, that they would not waver from it. That they would not waver. So this morning, we have that great privilege and that great opportunity uh, to do that. Uh, so I want to uh, invite Bradley and Jane uh, forward. And they'll bring their, uh, their little one along with them.